Hello friends and welcome back to Life Centered. This year's guest list for the podcast is already looking incredible, and to kick things off, I was recently able to sit down with Bryony Schwann. I first met Bryony while she was the director of the Biomimicry Institute, and I consider myself lucky to have had her as a leader and mentor over the past decade. In our wide-ranging conversation, Bryony and I jump into the realities and importance of finding joy in our work. Useful tips for meditation, her childhood in Zimbabwe, women in social justice, how to build trust in order to create change, and much, much more. We really had a great time chatting, and I can't wait for you to listen in. Enjoy. About three years ago, when I left my position as the executive director of the Biomimicry Institute, and uh, be- before I left, I took a three-month sabbatical because I was just burned out. And I knew that I needed to do some deep thinking and get some rest. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do anything and I wouldn't be good for anybody. And during that time, I was so racked with the question of the world is in such a bad place. Um, you know, we're facing such huge environmental problems, huge social problems. And I felt like I needed to find the, the silver bullet, the one thing that I could do that would help turn things around. And one day I realized that that question was a rather arrogant question and a silly question because it, it it put so much burden on me. I was so tortured by that question, and it it put such a burden burden on myself because the reality is, no one person can do anything to turn the whole thing around. I mean, even even people who I admire greatly, like Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or Gandhi. Um, you know, the list can go on and on. Um, they were such brilliant people and such guided spirits, and they didn't change the whole world. They created some small changes, and and you know, obviously their changes were bigger than most uh, most of us ever accomplished in a lifetime. But nonetheless, you know, you look at South Africa, and yes, lots of lots has changed since Nelson Mandela was. Um, the president of South Africa, but South Africa still faces many of the same problems that existed before. So once I let go of that and realized what a ridiculous burden I was putting on myself, I was able to ask a different question and to say, you know, what is, what are my skills and talents? What is it that I have to bring to the world um, to be useful, to help create change, to make the world a better place? And then also, where is the joy in that for me? Because, you know, as far as we know, we only have one time around in this format, in this biological human body um, on, the, on the planet. You know, we have no idea what, what else might exist, but we only know that we have this one time. And so for me, ha- having joy and being happy in what I'm doing is also critically important. And, and the reality is that if you're doing things that matter, that are aligned with your values, 
you will automatically feel joyful in doing that. And so, so, so that was very important to me and a huge um, paradigm shift for me when, when that happened. Uh, I've still struggled with what is, it the, what is it the thing that I need to be doing in the world because you know I've done a lot of different things and I have felt good about what I've accomplished to date. But uh, I know that there's still, I have about a third of my um, you know, professional life left as long as my health holds out. And I want to do something important with that time. And I know it's going to be different than what I've done before. And finding the clarity on that ha- has been challenging, but, it's, but I'm getting closer. Have you ever read the book, I think it's called Finding the Joy Within or Searching for Joy Within Yourself? Um, Hold on, let me look it up right here. It's called Joy on Demand by Chad Ming Tan. I have not read that. I would like to. It's amazing. It is one of my finds this year. Um, He he was a, um, called himself a deeply unhappy individual. raised in Singapore, um, became, I think, one of the first, you know, 50 Google engineers, was working happily at Google, basically um, realized at some point in early in his life that meditation can help bring about joy and um, struggled with it, worked with it. He's an engineer, so he's also sort of a type A personality. And it's a, it's, the book is an amusing um, look, he's very uh, engaging with how he presents it. And I think useful for people like myself or like others who are maybe a little bit uncomfortable with being wanting to achieve something with meditation. And, and he started this um, class at Google, it became the most popular class there. But one of the things that I think you just mentioned is joy, finding joy. And one of the things that I was a realization to me is I've always done meditation for finding peace and uh, the idea of finding joy through meditation was a transition for me, but something that really changed the way that I view meditation uh, and the way that it can impact my life, that you can find joy. And in fact, what he talks about is that maybe finding joy first and then that helps you achieve more and do more because you're more resilient, you're more creative, you're more engaged, you're more observant. That if you, you know, it echoes a little bit what you're saying, that if you put that weight on your shoulders, if you're if you're sort of stressed about it all and searching that and you're unjoyful about it, that that actually inhibits your ability to contribute, that inhibits your ability to do the thing you want to do most. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. And so finding joy as, as the first step in the process. And, and it's great because, of course, that's a reinforcing loop, you know, that you enjoy that. You're finding joy and it helps you. And as you spread that out into your life, it, it helps you find other, other ways that you can be joyful or help others be joyful. And so uh, for me, it's an, it's an amazing book. I'll include the link in the in the show notes and I'll send it over to you. One of the things you mentioned is you, you know, you, 
I wanted to dive into sort of the reading the podcast and the meditation a little bit. How how do you meditate? Um, I actually do two different kinds of meditation. Um, the first is your pretty standard meditation of sitting in a comfortable place, feeling very sort of grounded with wherever you're sitting and closing your eyes, making sure that you're in a quiet space where you're not going to be distracted and then staying with your breath. And I try to do that meditation in the morning. And I also try to do, it's usually about a 15 minute meditation for me. And then I try to do use that same technique if I know I'm going into a difficult meeting. I will try to schedule time before the meeting to meditate before I go into that meeting because it makes a huge difference in how I operate within that space. And it helps me stay very grounded and present and not get triggered. So that's, that's the one type of meditation that I use. And then the other type is uh, more of a walking meditation. I should say it's a less structured meditation, but I realized that one of my teachers once had said to me, she had said to me, you know, you um, are meditating when you are out in nature with your camera. And I had never thought about it that way. And she said, you don't really need to be sitting on a cushion because what happened, this is someone who knows me well, because she, she said, when you're out in nature and with your camera and you're being very intentional of looking for patterns in nature, you are not thinking about anything else that's going on in your life. And you're in that state of flow, um, which is, of course, one of the best states that we ever want to be in in our life, where we're so focused on what it is that we're doing. You see this a lot with... Um, athletes that are very focused you think about um, rock climbers they're in a state of flow so so are musicians frequently when they're playing music they're so present in what they're doing that all of the noise in our brains all the layers of thinking in our brains go away and we're really focused on on that one thing that we're doing most people don't associate doing with meditation and and, and maybe some meditation teachers would say, well, that's not really meditation. But all I can say is it works for me. Um, so when I, I purposely try to spend time getting out in nature, and you know, as I said, sometimes I can take my camera with me, and I can, be, I can be in a single spot for an hour looking at the details in lichen or moss or rocks or sand or insects and and not really move and realize that hours have gone by and I have been lost in a different world. And for me, that's incredibly meditative. Yeah. I mean, I just interviewed this woman named Betsy Hines. And I don't know if you, if you know her. Um, she lives in Boise, Idaho, or around that area right now. And she had mentioned that one of the challenges for her at getting outside is she needed to give herself almost a task. So she goes out and forages out in nature uh, for edible items. And for her, that's a flow state where she's looking through the woods, walking through the woods. But she, but it's one of these things where, uh, for me, I need to have a photography assignment or I need to go out and I need to have an excuse to go outside to do that kind of flow state. You started off by saying, you know, you look at photography as the way that you approach going outside and you get into a flow state with that. 
do you need to give yourself an assignment to go out in the woods to achieve that? Or can you achieve that just by walking in the woods? Or what are ways that you engage yourself? Um, I don't have to have photography to do it. I, um, well, the other assignment I have is a high energy corgi who needs to get out <laughs> for a walk on a regular basis. So that, um, that always, you know, that always prompts me to get out and do it. I don't usually need a huge one because I know that being out in nature and, and especially walking and hiking is always ends up being a highly pleasurable experience for me. And that even when I f- might find excuses and think, oh, I'm too busy and I've got this deadline and that deadline, you, usually then, you know, I'm forced to because of my dog. And I always end up saying, thank goodness I did this because I and I end up being in a much better state of mind. But I don't have to have the photography to be there. I just I just love being outside and I love nature. It's really where I'm most much more comfortable in the world than anywhere else. And I'm fortunate living in Montana, it, in Missoula, Montana, where I do live. It's not a burden for me to get out. You know, it's 10 minutes from my house and I can be out on a trail where I don't run into another person and where I can see eagles and otters and beaver and deer and all kinds of wildlife with, with, with very little effort. And so uh, I feel very fortunate. I don't think I actually could survive in a place if I didn't have that kind of access to, to nature. When you grew up, you didn't grow up in Montana. Could you could you tell me a little bit about about your childhood in terms of were you out in the woods were you in a town how what did that look like Well I was born and grew up in Zimbabwe and it was of course called Rhodesia back in those days and um it's in southern Africa it's on the Zimbabwe's on the northeast border of South Africa um a lot of people confuse the two places and think they're the same but they're not they're they're countries that are adjacent to each other and um it's interesting because i feel like my childhood in zimbabwe is somewhat similar to the life i have here in montana obviously not from a weather perspective or a landscape perspective because they're quite different but both places had uh, Zimbabwe has a much bigger population now, but at that time it had a fairly small population and lots of access to wild places. I, I lived in a, a city a bit bigger than um, the city that I live in now, but I um, grew up riding horses and so my mother would take me to the outskirts of town to go riding. And we also spent a lot of time in the bush my parents were avid nature lovers, and um, of course we had access to all the wildlife that most people think of in Africa, elephants, um, lions, leopards, cheetah, all the different kinds of um, antelope, and and bucks. Um, I'm not using the right biological terms because there's so many of them, but you know, lots of access to wildlife. And so we spent a lot of time in the bush growing, when I was growing up and we had a quite a variety of landscape. We, we had the, the normal bush that you would associate with Africa, dry scrublands. 
Um, and then on the eastern part of the country, we had um, the highlands or the mountainous area, which was lush and full of ferns and clear streams. And I spent hours and hours as a kid um, exploring in those streams and turning over rocks and getting lost out in, in nature. So I feel so much gratitude for the childhood that I had. It was pretty extraordinary. You know, and it wasn't all roses because my access to nature was amazing and being able to have those experiences with all those wildlife. I, you know, I could tell you stories till the cows come home about my wildlife experiences. But uh, the other thing that made my childhood really interesting is that I grew up in a civil war and that was a very different experience than most people have to, to actually be in a place where you have to think about landmines where you have to travel from one city to another in an armed convoy because you might get attacked to deal with constant bomb threats um, and dealing with friends and family and people you know losing their lives in a civil war. And of course, your freedoms were greatly restricted during those times. And uh, I, I most noticed it here when 9-11 happened because watching other people's responses to it and I realized that it was such an alien experience for most of my friends here in the U.S. And for me, it was, it sort of brought back memories of what my childhood was like. I mean, we didn't deal with such a huge catastrophic event, but you know, just people feeling threatened um, from that event, I realized that that was new for a lot of my friends. So, you know, I, I had a really interesting childhood, and then I, I ended up going to boarding school in South Africa for a while in my last few years of high school um, in Johannesburg, and that was during the Soweto riots, and um, that had a huge impact on me. And then after that, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Natal in South Africa. So I spent four years in South Africa during, during the, the sort of height of the apartheid era. And um, I was really active with um, NUSAS, which was a student organization fighting apartheid. So that was sort of where the, really the roots of my activism started. It's really interesting to me when I talk to a lot of guests on the podcast. Um, we tend to interview people who, you know, are in this space of what you might call life-centered design. And the idea the idea that, that you just mentioned or the experiences that you just told us about both are a an empathy for nature as well as an empathy for the social systems of people or for the you know, having empathy for your loved ones who are feeling threatened. And I don't know where I'm exactly going with this other than to, other than to say that, that that's a link that we've seen in everybody who's in this space that, that, that they, they're trying to connect or, or, or their, their life experience has given them empathy for both. Did, do you think that those experiences that you've had have given you empathy for, uh, for people. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yes, I definitely think they they have. Um, I think particularly those political political experiences have really shaped shaped how um, I think around that. 
you know, and I think one of the challenges that we have in contemporary modern life is the separation of people from nature. And we sort of joke about it and say it lightly that, oh, you know, we need to realize that we are nature. But this is a very serious question. Reality is we, we really are nature. Um, we, are, we are entirely dependent on nature. We're a part of nature. We're integrated. And the more we can realize this at a very deep and fundamental level, the, the richer and the richer our lives will be and the more responsible we will be to the planet that we live on. Um, one of the things I love to tell people is, you know, a lot of people have a, uh, aberrance for, for, for insects, you know, they're afraid of them and so forth. And they just think, oh, insects are just pests. Why do we have to deal with them? They should just all go away. And I, I love to remind people that, you know, if insects disappeared off the planet, we'd be gone in a heartbeat. That our lives are so dependent on insects, particularly pollinators. And um, we can't live on this planet without them. But frankly, they would do just fine without us. So, um, and, you know, it, it sort of usually stops people in their tracks and they really have to think about that because it hasn't occurred to most people and, and most people don't really think about how integrated our lives are into the complex eco ecosystems we have on our planet. Being shaped by both the Civil War and a deep love of nature and realizing that we are nat nature, how has that impacted your actions in the world? Well, I think that, you know, so yes, I had a re I've always had a real deep love of nature. But interestingly enough, my first um, foray into activism was really not around environmental issues, but it was around social justice issues and apartheid specifically. You know, having being being a student at university during the apartheid era when there were a lot of demonstrations and protests. Um, you know, I was still pretty young and fairly naive, and so I wasn't a leader during those times, but I was active um, and sort of absorbing and uh, observing other people and it had a profound influence on my life and I was fortunate to have parents who um, were very concerned about uh, what was happening both politically both in South Africa and Zimbabwe my, my father was my father was a pretty significant person in my life in the sense that he started the first correspondence college for black students in Southern Africa that is still going today um, when he recognized that there weren't very many post-high school educational opportunities for black students. And it wasn't until I was really an adult that I realized the, the, how that had influenced me. But it wasn't until I um, moved to the U.S. that I really got involved in environmental issues. Uh, and actually, prior to moving to Montana, I worked for Yale University, was part of a union there, and we went out on strike. It was one of the largest strike in history that involved the most number of women workers, female workers or union members. And um, that, you know, had a big effect on me. So I got to understand labor issues. And then when I moved to Montana, 
I, you know, couldn't believe what an incredibly beautiful place this was. And I was horrified at the fact that we would actually clear cut large swaths of land and just denude and the whole hillside and trash streams leaving sediments and debris in streams. I, I, it was just stunning for me. And so I got involved in a local grassroots group uh, called Friends of the Bitterroot and got very active there and then um, sort of worked my, my way up to larger organizations and I was very involved in the fight to protect uh, and save, get more wilderness designated in Montana. And, um, and then that led to going back to university and doing a, a degree in environmental studies. I did my master's in environmental studies. And then this is where the sort of social justice and the environmental stuff came back together again because I realized that the environmental movement at that time was very dominated by white men and that there were very few women in leadership positions and very few people of color, especially in the Northwest. And I started to see women get involved and then disengage and I would ask them why and a lot of them felt like they there wasn't a place for their voices at the table they felt they found the the whole wilderness and conservation movement extremely antagonistic and that it was focused entirely on on conservation and didn't take into consideration the impact on people's lives and I found that most women wanted to approach it from a very different perspective and so while I was doing my master's degree, I got a small, scholar, a small um, grant to put on a women's environmental conference. And that turned into a conference that looked at the crossover between social justice issues and the environment. And the stories that women told at that conference made me realize that we needed to do more than just a conference. And so I... Um, gathered a group of friends um, that I had done social change with and we started meeting in the evenings and we formed uh, an organization called Women's Voices for the Earth and I quit my conservation job that I had at that time and um, luckily I was young and naive and didn't have any idea how difficult <laughs> it was going to be to do this. But I, I uh, started Women's Voices for the Earth, and um, that was in the fall of 1994. Um, formally opened our first office in January 1995. And, you know, the first couple of years were a real struggle because the philanthropic community, the foundations, were just as, maybe sexist is too strong a word, but didn't really see the need for a women's environmental organization and couldn't really understand what we were trying to accomplish. But it didn't take long uh, for us to start really organizing women and, and building up their voices for some of the foundations to see the value of the work that we were doing. Um, and so after a few years, we started to get more funding and we weren't working, you know, 100 hours a week for a buck an hour which is what the first couple of years was like. And so that was sort of, that. that's really how it all got started. What are the things that 
you have found have worked in terms of creating change? Um, are, are there any specific uh, tactics or, or strategies or even just, um, uh, it sounds like a lot of your work, and, and we've seen this before, is in the networks of people and maintaining those relationships. Um, how, how important is creating that community in creating results? extremely important really really important you know I always tell people that there are when you're doing social change work it's kind of like any other it's like a plumbing job or electrical job you need a toolbox with every tool possible in it because you don't know what tool you're going to need for what particular task and so you you better have a a toolbox full of diverse tactics but the thing that goes across the board is the ability to be able to work with people and to really understand people and understand where they're coming from. Because no amount of yelling and screaming at somebody is going to get them to change their value system or their minds. Um, and you have to really understand where people are at and build trust and work with them to create change. Now, that doesn't mean to say that it, at some points in time, you are going to be in conflict with people. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I could ever build that rapport with someone like Donald Trump. Um, but I do think understanding why people voted for him. Why were they attracted to his message? What is it? Where is their pain? Understanding that helps you understand how to create change. That so there's a, there's a subtle difference there, and I, I hope I'm I hope I'm sort of making myself clear about that. Um, but yes, yeah, so you so I think working with people, understanding how to move people, understanding where they're coming from, what their values are, and where their pain points are, is a very important beginning in understanding how how to create change. <clears throat> this may sound like a really simple question, but how do you go about doing that? How do you go about getting to know them better or understanding those pain points? So, what are the things that that you try and do? Well, here's a story that I often tell students when I, because sometimes I, I, I have done some teaching at the University of Montana. And one of the stories I always share with students was we were working on, um, when I was at Women's Voices for the Earth, we were, one of the first projects we worked on was a, a very large pulp and paper mill here in Missoula. It's, it's no longer operating today, but it was back in the early 90s. And it was a classic situation where the company, um, Stone Container, had, had done the, the classic division, right? Jobs versus the environment. That they couldn't clean up their act um, and, and uh, make certain changes to the plant because it was going to cost too much money and therefore they would have to lay people off. And so they created this division and used the workers and the union to sort of be the buffer between them and making change. And again, it sort of gets back to what I was talking about before is this yelling and screaming at the workers was not going to accomplish anything except alienate them further 
and push them more towards the company's position. And in my view, this was such an old divide and conquer tactic that had been used so often with industry and still is used today. It's still used consistently in the political rhetoric of, you know, people that are running for office. And so what I did is I found out when the union members were having their um, meetings at the union hall and uh, the union hall had a, a just a lovely down-to-earth bar and I would go sit in the bar and wait for them to come out of their meeting and I'd sit and have a beer with them and at first they were suspicious of me and very um, reticent and a little closed off but I would just persist and I would, you know, ask them about their lives and their families and what their jobs were like and I'd tell them about mine and over a matter of months I built up trust with a lot of the leaders in the union and they got to understand that I was human and they were human and that I did care about them as people and I was able to talk about this division and to talk about how I believed the changes could be made at the mill and that it wouldn't close the company down. And so that's, that's really how I went about it. And I, you know, I've used that strategy in different ways many, many times over the years. Oh, I really love that. It's, it, it gets down to just having a drink with people and getting to know them. Exactly. Uh, asking them questions and yeah, realizing yourself that everyone's human we're all in this together and that you know helping them realize the same thing but putting the effort in the initial effort in to find out where they are and to be brave enough to sit down and just start that maybe slightly awkward conversation yeah it was pretty awkward at first you know a i was a woman and i was dealing mostly with very burly men um we came from very different backgrounds I still probably had a slightly stronger accent by then, so I was still seen as a as a foreigner, and um, so that of course was alien. So there were a lot of different things I think that made it a little bit challenging at first, but it just it just took patience and time, and um, and it worked. So um, I wanted to jump back to a earlier thing that you mentioned, which was that you like to listen to podcasts. What are one or two podcasts that you just don't miss, that you just like to always keep up on? Are there any that are there? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> My number one favorite podcast is a podcast called 10% Happier with Dan Harris. Um, I've actually probably listened to most of his podcasts more than once, some of them as many as four times. Um, Dan Harris is an anchor on NBC, uh, ABC television, and um, he had a personal crisis, and through that personal crisis came to meditation. He's funny, he's irreverent, he talks about how he is the last person in the world you'd think would uh, use meditation, and so he is able to, uh, I think he calls it meditation for fidgety non-believers or something like that. <laughs> And so he interviews people from all walks of life and how meditation has changed their lives. And um, they're, they're just, his interviews are just wonderful. 
Oh, so that's that, great. I'll definitely yeah, have to add him. One, that's my number one favorite um, series. And he actually, by the way, has an app called 10% Happier, and it's a meditation app. It's a, it'll teach you how to do meditation. So for all those people who say, I cannot meditate, I cannot turn my mind off, by the way, nobody can turn their mind off. So, um, <laughs> but it's a it's a great app for helping training you. And um, Dan interviews um, a couple of people that are longtime meditation teachers, and he helps you walk through all the steps and all the questions that everybody has about meditation and why it's so difficult to do to get started. He addresses those, um, and it's a wonderful tool. Uh, one of my other favorite podcasts is um, On Being with Krista Tippett, um, which, she, which is a show that she has on National Public Radio. And Krista tends to interview different spiritual teachers um, from all different religious and non-religious backgrounds. A lot of philosophers, and I love her show because it, she addresses a lot of the very big questions in life as does Dan Harris in a lot of his interviews. And so I very much enjoy that. And, uh, you know, the TED Radio Hour, I'm pretty devoted to that as well. I I actually have a lot of podcasts that I love. Well, those are three great ones. Those are actually three that I don't listen to, that aren't on my list. So I'm excited. I can add a couple more to to my roster. Oh, good. And you mentioned this last year you've been doing a lot of reading. Is there a book or two that you've found um, inspirational or that you've gone back to repeatedly? Yes. Um, I've sort of been doing some different reading this year. I've been reading a lot of psychology. And I have also been reading quite a bit on um, neurobiology. Um, I... Uh, I'm really interested in, and I'll come to the specific books in a little bit, but I'm very, very interested in how our brains work and how our minds work and also how um, our bodies, our our health is impacted by our emotions and our thoughts. And um, I'm also very interested right now in the role that spirituality Plays in our lives. Now, I am not a religious person. I do. I don't. I don't adhere to any particular religion. I. Um, I am certainly a scholar of Buddhism. I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist per se, but I'm a scholar of Buddhism. Um, but I like to hear different points of view, and um, I've been interested in integral theory. And so I've been reading quite a bit, but the thing that really grabbed me this year is a poet. And I heard David White being interviewed by Krista Tippett. And I was so moved by that interview. I have subsequently bought um, a number of his books. Uh, One of my favorites is Consolations, The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words. Um, that's one of my favorite. And then I have uh, an, several other um, books of his poetry. And I recently was lucky enough to attend one of his poetry workshops for a weekend, which was absolutely extraordinary. Um, 
I've also been reading a lot of Joanna Macy. Um, one of my favorite books of hers is World as Lover, World as Self. And Joanna, you know, really looks at a, a lot of big environmental issues and, um, and how, you know, our relationship to the world, how we think our spirituality is connected to what we do as social change activists. And then um, the last book that I would mention is Buddha's Brain, um, the, practice, the Practical Neuroscience of Buddha's Brain, Happiness, Love, and Wisdom by Rick Hansen, PhD. Um, I discovered Rick when I, the last few years, I built a, a mobile app called Kind Kudos to spread uh, joy and kindness. And um, as part of doing that work, I did a course on the science of happiness with UC Berkeley's Center for Greater Good. And Rick Hansen is one of the researchers that studies in this field. And so went to a number of his workshops and um, started to read about his work. Thank you. I mean, those are an amazing list. Uh, none of, again, none of which I I have read. Have you ever read the book Thinking Fast and Slow? No, I have not. Am I by Joel Kahneman? It's very interesting. It, it fits within the themes that you were talking about around cognition uh, bias and getting at, uh, you know, almost like a summary of what do we know about the brain and how it behaves and how it impacts how we think and how we behave in the world? It's really, uh, I, I think it took, it was the book that I, every page I was making notes on. I, I, I still, I don't think I've finished the book and it's been several years. Cause I just, every time I, I open it up, it's just more and more notes and ideas that flow out of it. So it's, it's a really dense read, but it's a, it's a fantastic one. I look forward to reading it. Okay, we have a section in our show where we jump into um, quick questions. What is one of the most harmful things we are doing today, but we don't realize? Well, for most of my life, I would have answered um, that question in the context of toxic chemicals that we're putting into the environment and how it's actually how they're actually undermining our ability to reproduce. Um, and I say that with a caveat because I think humans are reproducing too much. But um, nevertheless, I do think people, you know, have a right to have one or two children. Um, but the fact is that, you know, we are, um, we are contaminating the planet um, in such a way that it's making it really difficult for both humans and other wildlife to, to reproduce. And there's more and more data coming out on that. But honestly... I think the bigger issue is climate change. For me, that is the most pressing issue right now because we've either passed that tipping point or if we haven't passed it, we're already incredibly close to the point of which we are going to alter the, the Earth's atmosphere. And I think people don't understand that how incredibly exquisite the combination of um, oxygen to carbon and other um, compounds are in the atmosphere that it's it's not a game where we can say oh 10 degrees here it is really a question of one degree of this or one degree of that and you know I'm not as I'm not a climate change scientist I've read most of the science um, 
but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not someone who can sort of spout off all the statistics. I just know enough to know that we are playing an incredibly dangerous game with our planet. And I'm very fearful for the world because we, at a time now, more than any time in history, we need to be taking really big steps to rectify the situation. And we're not. And yeah, it worries, it, it troubles me deeply. It's an interesting challenge. I mean, you know, oh, I was talking with one of our guests, Sheen, had said you couldn't pick a harder problem for people to solve because it's so remote from most people's everyday experience. And the time frames are a little bit larger than most people are used to thinking around that our brains are literally not wired to address the problem of climate change. All of our biases go against it. And so it is, it's a huge design problem of how do we communicate that to the world and how do we create the change that's needed to, yeah, avoid the worst conflict, the worst results, because I think we're already in, you know, negative results, but how do we avoid even worse results? Yeah. You know, I just posted a, a, a quote on my Facebook page because I thought it was brilliant by Gus Speth. Um, and his quote is, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we will need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Just I think, brilliant. yeah, that is so on the money because... I mean, when uh, I think one of the things, it might have been in Thinking Fast and Slow, but you look at religions, and religions are very good at creating all of the touch points that control people's behaviors, and that's how they persist through time. That's how they enable people to do things that are against their own self, their own best interests, um, against their own, you know, why religions can create lots of problems, but they also... They create the norms, they create the behaviors, creates the systems within which people behave. And I think, can we craft something similar that enables us to behave within the environment, within the biosphere? I, I, I think that's a big challenge. And I do think spirituality and religions will need to play a large role in that uh, solution. And Tim, you touching on something, would you go back to the very beginning of our conversation um, when I mentioned to you that I had sort of been struggling with what was next for me? This is exactly the place that I'm finding myself being drawn to and where I'm most interested right now. And that is trying to figure out how to create that spiritual and cultural, cultural transformation. And um, that, that is exactly the space that I want to be working in. Um, I don't know ex quite yet what that really looks like. I am contemplating taking, doing a, um, a course in um, life and executive coaching because I think if we can help leaders really get clear on, on how to do their best work, 
Um, and I think that that would be a, a very useful strategy. And I, I'm really, really interested in that space. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of work that's needed there. So it's been interesting to me to see leaders like Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama getting together, having friendships, talking about joy and the importance of joy and finding uh, similarities between religions and how that can help people move in new ways and bridge maybe some of these challenges. I think there's a lot of work needed in that space. Absolutely. So this one's a little strange, but uh, bear with me. If you were able to splice in one characteristic or gene, if you're a synthetic biologist, from any organism on Earth into people, what would it be and why? You know, this question is a hard one for me because, first of all, I'd say we should never be splicing in genes <laughs> from one organism to another. Um, I think that's really dangerous work, but I know you're not being literal about that. So I would say probably the tortoise. You know, it's a, it's a tough question because there are so many organisms out there that are just extraordinary and, and they're so well adapted to their environment and we have so much to learn from nature. But the reason I would say the tortoise is because I think humans need to learn one thing more than anything else, and that's to slow down and to take life, to enjoy life a little bit more and to get off this treadmill of just faster, 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 more, more, more. It's, we've got to get off that and to understand that, you know, when the end comes, the things that we will value most in life are the times that we have spent with our loved ones. It's not the car, the house, the clothes. Those things in the end are really irrelevant. And it, it's, you know, it's really going to be about the relationships and the adventures that we've taken out a lot of times in nature. And why wait till we're on our deathbed to do that? We need to slow down now and start appreciating life more and disengaging from that frenzy of more, more, more and faster, faster, faster. I, I think that is such an important piece of advice and it's so hard to follow. And I and I think it is hard to to do that slowing down. Um, are there tactics you use or things that that you might suggest? I know in my in my own life, uh, and I, we talked with Kathy Zarsky on the podcast. This this was also something that she talked about, but trying to find scheduled ways of slowing down or intentionally putting on the brakes in your life. Are there, are there things that, that you do for yourself to slow down? Um, yes, I have a cabin out in the woods that is primitive and doesn't have any running water. And that's one of my favorite places to go because it's also offline. So I like to, I like, I like to go off the grid. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not connected to my cell phone or the internet. That's hugely important. Um, for the last 24 years, um, I have done an annual week-long river trip, a wilderness river trip, where I'm completely unplugged. And I, and I often do more than one river trip a year, but um, I, I've been a licensed whitewater guide for about that amount of time. And those are the, the transformation that happens to you when you go out into the wilderness for a week and you unplug 
is enormous. It completely shifts your priorities and makes you realize what's important in life. And so I think getting off the grid is essential. And again, getting out into nature is also very important because it's good for us to know to and be aware of the fact that we're not at the top of the food chain as well. So I think it's a, it's good to get out in a place where there are bears and mountain lions and uh, you start to really, again, connect to the fact that we are, we are nature, we're part of nature and you sort of plug back in more to the way the real world instead of the, the artificial world that we as humans have created in our um, urban environments. Thank you. Yeah, I think getting off the grid is something that um, I try and do, but it doesn't happen very often. And then you realize once you're off for a week that you didn't need any of that uh, stuff. You come back and you realize, oh, yeah, I didn't miss it at all when it's not there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I just had a weekend this last weekend where I skied into my cabin and turned my phone off and didn't turn it back until I went got back into town and it was so great and the world didn't end the world did not end (laughs) there's there's one final question uh that i wanted to ask you which was if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then back again where would you go i would go to the white house because i would like to go and tell um barack and michelle obama how grateful I am for their grace and integrity in which they have led this country over the last eight years and to apologize to them for the a lot of the hatred and bigotry that they have experienced and um, and just to tell them how much I appreciate they how much they've risen above it and um, and how much they you know how much they've led this country with so much grace and dignity and I know they haven't been perfect. I certainly know uh, Obama has not been the perfect president. Um, but the reality is, I, I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect president. And what an impossible place to be. But I just, I look back on these eight years and the issues that he has cared about and the things that, the good that he has done. And I would just want to tell him how much I appreciate it. Bryony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome, Tim. It was a delight. You have been listening to Life Centered, Episode 10 with Bryony Schwan. Life Centered podcast can be found on iTunes. And this week, I wanted to personally thank Alana and Inez for writing such nice reviews on iTunes. It made my day. If you like what you heard, it really does help us out to give us a rating make a few comments, or share the link with those you think might enjoy our podcast. Life Centered is produced by Amelia Tracy and myself, Tim McGee. We do love making the show, and if you want to take the next step to help us grow and create more content, you can now officially support our efforts on our Patreon page. Of course, the podcast will always remain free of charge, but Patreon is a way you can sponsor episodes if you have the means and the desire Keep life-centered, well, centered. There's also some perks along the way if you become one of our patrons. That's all for this week. As always, thanks for listening all the way to the end. This is Tim saying over now. out.